Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the In this Pulp Event Podcast, pulp art expert, David Saunders, discusses the thrilling adventures of Rudolf Bilarski. David is a New York artist, whose work has been collected worldwide in museums including the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum, and the Hirschhorn Museum. He has written numerous articles on American pulp artists and books on his father, Norman Saunders, Walter Baumhofer, and H.J. Ward. David also runs the website, Field Guide to Wild American Pulp Artists. Pulp Fests, Mike Chom co-introduces David. David Saunders, uh, everyone knows, is the pulp community's leading expert on pulp art. Uh-oh. He's got, you know, he's, he's, he's a pretty smart guy. Norman Saunders' son and a talented artist in his own right. He, he painted our Muncie Award for us uh, in 2009. Uh, but he is going to be talking about the pulp artist Rudolf Polarski, who did a substantial amount of work for Standard Magazines. David? All yours. Thank you. Is this mic on? Hello? Not on. Hello? Hello? Is that on? Yeah. Okay, so we're ready to go with Pulp Fest on Rudy Bilarski. So, uh, you know, he was like one of the best pulp artists, paperback, men's adventure. He did slick stuff. This is like uh, a cover from. 1944, G-Men Detective, Death Stops the Coal. It's just one example of his like shocking, incredible work that's attracted millions of pedestrians to newsstands during the 20th century. So who is this guy? So this is where he was born. It's in uh, DuPont, Pennsylvania. This is Pittston. This is DuPont. This is the factories back here where they process coal, and these are all coal mining. They're now uh, strip mines, but at that time it was coal mines going straight down. He was born uh, May 27th, 1900, right on the button. And DuPont, this is the suburb of Pittston there, it was named after um, this guy DuPont who invented uh, a DuPont explosives. Um, and, and all the cereals, you see that guy pushing that box down, that's a DuPont. Uh, <laughs> machine, and just for coal mining. And um, his uh, parents um, were young, and they came two years earlier and uh, moved to Pittston and DuPont. You know, they, um, they had two kids, Ted and Emil, and they were six and seven, the kids, so uh, Rudy was the first guy in the family that was an American citizen. And uh, then after him, uh, his little brother Walter and uh, Hermione, Helen, and Veronica. So there were seven kids in all in the family. And they went to the, you know, the Polish Catholic Church. And uh, both the parents uh, never learned to read or write English. Um, and uh, at that time in you know, Poland, there was uh, mass exoduses uh, from political upheaval and whatnot, and poverty, basically. 
but they fill, followed uh, literally uh, thousands of other Polish immigrants to this area to be coal miners. Um, so when Rudy was six years old, um, they actually had an apartment on this street, on Main Street, on the second floor above a bar. And um, it's like right down there. <laughs> and uh, he went to school as a little kid. And, uh, but when he hit 12 years old, that was the legal age at which kids were permitted to uh, enter the coal mines. So um, like his two brothers before him, because they were six and seven when they showed up, uh, they, he went into the coal mines too with them and as his brother after him. This is where he worked. Um, it's, uh, the company was owned by the Pennsylvania Coal Company, and, but this is the Hillside Coal Company in Pittston, and this is the Butler Cotlery. And uh, the, the colliery processed all the um, coal dug out of the mines right in that area. And uh, large numbers of boys were needed to work in this process, uh, processing of the coal. So little Rudy uh, went to work in this breaker plant, and this is, the building itself is just a mechanical complex with uh, they crushed large uh, pieces of coal that were uh, picked and blasted out of the mountain uh, in deep caves, and um, then they would get smashed through these roller bars on a gravity feed thing you see here, and the little kids would sit in the chutes. They were breaker boys, and they'd pick out the slate and the uh, other types of uh, just schist or whatever that was in there with it, and throw it to the side. And um, the, the coal company would prefer the kids didn't get mangled into the machines, but if they, um, you know, ever got busy thinking about other stuff, there was this guy who's uh, an older breaker boy, and you see he's holding a little cane in his hand. He's got a little whipping cane. He'd go around and make sure that they would stay alert. And um, in 1913, a social reformer came to the plant and... Um, was making photo documentation of these abuses for newspapers. And um, oddly enough, he photographed Rudy Bilarski in this actual photograph. And that's him. Um, so um, the only relief that he ever had from this incredible hardship, this sooty grind, was when his older brother, Ted, finally left uh, the coal mines. Um, and he started working for a um, newspaper uh, printer uh, in town. And uh, he then put out his own little uh, Polish newspaper, his older brother, Ted. And um, he also started a, um, a Boy Scout troop with the idea that it would um, help uh, the kids. So this is Ted right here, this older guy. This is uh, Emil, his younger brother. These are their sisters, Hermione and Helen. Veronica's not in the picture. And this is Rudy. Uh, and Ted Bilarski uh, became a popular civic leader in the town, and his portrait still hangs in Town Hall of DuPont right now. Um, having, you know, um, done stuff basically to help uh, the Polish uh, population. So Rudy really loved the uh, Boy Scouts, and he uh, 
developed a, a very sincere passion for camping and fishing. So these were uh, formative experiences for him, obviously, uh, as it would be for us. And um, he acquired this unusual habit of alternating um, intense periods of labor with, um, you know, pastoral retreats to camping things. And he actually did it the rest of his entire life. Uh, it was almost, um, almost no one I've ever met really does that. You know, they might go when the weather's nice, go hunting or something, but he would literally um, start and stop, start and stop, and, and go usually by himself uh, into the woods. And um, he loved it. You know, he was uh, serious about it. You know, as soon as they were 15 years old, um, they, or even just happened to grow too fast, they couldn't fit in the, uh, the shoots for the Breaker Boys anymore. And um, so the other job that they would have, um, if they would live long enough even, uh, they could become these mule drivers. And they would drag the, um, these carts on little uh, rails um, all the way down to the mines and back up with all of the um, uh, whatever slag they were ever to get that day. And um, this is pretty tough work. And uh, they were just kids. And, uh, but they, were, they could walk in the mine without um, bending over because they were narrow shafts. So it's a perfect thing for teenage kids if they were slightly small. And um, so he was a mule driver then. And uh, he, um, the, 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 it was even worse though than being a breaker because they were cave-ins and there was flammable gas and it would explode and kill everyone. And um, these type of things happened. And, um, but he was actually, at the end of a 14-hour day, uh, he'd make uh, 50 cents. And so that was good for the family, because how could they do it otherwise? So um, one day before his shift began, uh, he happened to draw a, um, a wall on a whitewashed um, power plant right outside of the entrance to the mine. And, uh, he drew a, a portrait of the mine superintendent. And the, the foreman of the mine was so impressed with this drawing, and everyone was too, the other kids and stuff, because um, he, he was an artistic little talent, that the, uh, the foreman said, well, you should, instead of being a mule driver, we'll make you the sign painter, and you could do the safety signs all throughout the mine. So also, you know, throughout the whole complex that they had, they needed safety signs. So he started doing that. And um, the foreman also ran a uh, like power generator, so they had electricity in the mine, and um, where the workers were. And uh, he learned to um, do like maintenance on um, hoists and compressors and generators and stuff. And but also just to shovel coal into the fire burned um, generator for the electric generator. And um, the foreman, you know, realized he was not only had a knack for art, but also um, he was a good a mechanic and a real interest in machinery. Now there was a, um, a string of accidents uh, that were popularized in the newspapers and the, the Pennsylvania, which, you know, is a coal state, um, but they passed a law saying, you know, we need to um, have a mine safety act. And so, uh, the first thing they came up with was that the inspectors who are inspecting the mines should probably know something about safety, which up until then they hadn't. Um, 
And of course, they couldn't read most of them English or English. So it's kind of hard to take the test. But um, this thing was developed called the International Correspondence Schools, ICS of Scranton. And if you happen to like pulps, you might have seen ads for this company in a pulp at some point. And it was actually begun for this reason. So it had a um, correspondence course. Um, it was $3 a month for two years if you could take the correspondence course. And then you would be uh, smart enough to pass the uh, mine safety test so that you could become a mine safety inspector. And um, it was in response to the, the political thing of uh, creating this mine safety thing that the school started. And they began to see that they could get requests from people saying, also, I want to know how to fix a compressor or something. So they said, well, we have that course too, just hold by. And so they began to add more and more courses. And um, so the, the, the boss got him onto that thing and gave him the, uh, you know, the application form or whatever. And he saw on it that it also says that you could, you could study illustrating. It's like probably the last thing on the list somewhere over here. You could get like a uh, illustration class thing too. And so he, he signed up for that with his own money. And so he was getting a second class um, as a young man. And um, he thought it was the greatest thing on earth. And um, by, the, by the, this time in 1917, this, this comes from Adventure Magazine, and he's 17 years old, and he's subscribing to this thing at this time. Uh, they had um, over 2 million students around the world um, going to, Scrant to this, this Scranton school, which is just blossomed, you know, it's a very profitable thing. And um, it just appealed to anyone who wanted to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And that's pretty much uh, Rudy. <laughs> I can call him that because my dad and him were pals, but to you guys, he's Rudolph, okay? <laughs> so that's Rudy. That's, uh, that's his younger brother, Walter, and that's Helen, Veronica, and Hermione. And that's his mom. And whatever, he's actually like about uh, 5'2". He's actually quite small. The mom is really tiny. But, um, you know, he was really interested in becoming a successful artist right away. And uh, there's a great quote by him. He says, when I, when I started out, I was really very green. I had heard that artists drew with charcoal, but I thought one was supposed to draw with big lumps of coal. But when the packets of art supplies arrived in the mail, there were these little sticks of vine charcoal, and then I understood. So you can just imagine this guy with coal up to his nose, right? In 1918, during the Great War, um, he was uh, registered for the draft, and uh, medium height, gray eyes, dark hair, flat feet. So he was luckily exempt from military service. Um, during Prohibition, in 1921 here, uh, the parents that, that had this, the bar had been down here before. They lived up here. They made a, the bar was uh, closed because it was Prohibition, but they made it into a soda parlor, and the, uh, the soda parlor um, was even more profitable to them for some reason than the, uh, the bar. And um, they were able to buy this uh, Oldsmobile touring car. And that's Rudy right there. 
He's wearing sandals, which I still can't figure out, you know. It could be a Polish thing because there was Polish kids in my school when I was a kid and they wore sandals too. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's a Polish thing. But um, right up here it says here and over here, uh, these are signs for this mom and pop business. And they say, you know, ice cream, cake, candy, cigars, tobacco, and groceries. And it occurs to me that that's him writing them because he'd been studying lettering and sign painting for all his time. So um, it's kind of cool. It's an early Bolarski right there. So here he is. Uh, he really enjoyed working at the plant because now he wasn't, you know, coming home dirty every day. And he probably got more money and stuff. And um, when he finished his IS, ICS course in mine safety, um, everything was rolling along smoothly for him. And uh, um, it seemed like, you know, uh, it's a pretty decent thing cooking for him. And they liked him. And they finally thought, well, we're going to make this guy a foreman someday. So we have to um, get him a little more training and to become a, a, what's called a certified plant engineer. And uh, it was just another kind of title. And um, so they sent him to one of the best schools um, for engineering, which is the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, which was a big mistake for them. So they expected this investment of his tuition to produce an indebted future foreman. Um, so this is Pratt in those days. But uh, the school itself was a, uh, founded by a whale oil tycoon, Mr. Pratt. And uh, he was, you know, benevolent. And he was trying to make these affordable classes that were all basically um, industrial um, organized type, uh, I mean, um, labor that would help industry and stuff. But taking uh, low-skilled, unskilled um, poor people and uh, helping them to do that. So they gave great classes in every phase of engineering, but also architecture, electrical engineering, chemical engineering, and industrial and uh, mechanical, um, you know, it's in electric and radio type classes and stuff. So they were really great. And they had also architecture, lettering, design, printing, uh, photography, and illustration. So he left. Uh, in 1922, went to New York and started his own little thrilling adventures. After he registered at the school, um, he also enrolled in a, a few art classes. And then each successive semester, he would take a few more art classes. And um, pretty soon, the mining company was getting his uh, progress reports and seeing that he had more art classes than mining classes. And they said, you know, you either have to get back the emphasis of fulfilling your engineering requirements or you know, forget about this uh, tuition thing. And Rudy said later that he wrote back to them and said, if you want to send me to art school, that's fine. Otherwise, forget it. But from, he was determined at that point and maybe earlier. But uh, from then on, he had to pay his own way through Pratt. Uh, so it took him like an extra two years. But he did it by uh, taking odd jobs. Again, he painted signs. He was a waiter. And he taught classes at um, a home for uh, 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 homeless, I mean, a homeless boys school. And um, he, he also uh, went to um, continuing education type courses in the night for himself because he you know, left in the sixth grade. So um, he had to um, get his own high school education. He really didn't know that much. Um, 
And he later made a joke and said that um, I, I, I couldn't really read, but I knew what a lot of the words looked like, but I just didn't know how to say them all. But anyway, so that he was not a pretentious person. <laughs> so here, he's, uh, here is a photo of him at Pratt, like a cute young man. And um, he met a lot of other great guys at Pratt. And um, he was the head of the um, Artsmen's, which was a, a, a sort of a special society of the, the best students of the art school. And um, so he met Frederick Blakesley, Walter Baumhofer, John Fleming Gould, A. Leslie Ross, and Harold Winfield Scott. And he didn't just meet them. I mean, they were lifelong pals. And um, when he got his yearbook, they wrote in his yearbook that um, Rudy Blarsky is a sign painter of great promise. <laughs> so in uh, the fall of 1926, he took off and uh, became uh, an illustrator in his chosen profession and uh, certified, got his little certificate, and um, you know, started making his first uh, illustrations. Um, right after I left Pratt, I went to George Delacorte. At that time, I was sort of gung-ho on the war stuff. And I did a picture, and Delacorte bought it. And immediately, in fact, he liked it so much that he hung it up in his main office, which made me very proud, of course. That started me off, and I did a lot of pulp stuff for them. That's for George Delacorte. But along with all of his work is um, trying to you know, try to uh, sell a bunch of junk and get his stuff around. He also became a lecturer and a teacher at that same time. And in the New York Times, they said, um, quote, Rudolf Bolarski will give a lecture entitled How Stories Are Illustrated on October 13, 1928 at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. And this is him in his uh, lecture phase. Now, his art career really began during the pioneer days of American aviation. Lucky Lindbergh, you know, had done his first nonstop transatlantic flight. And so uh, Rudy uh, produced a lot of stuff for um, war stories, war novels, and war birds of that time. So this is really what he was uh, breaking, totally breaking in and, and pretty much dominating it. He used to get little um, toys and um, build them like everyone else. And, um, but because he was so mechanically minded, he would set them up on strings and uh, create little uh, airplane um, scenes and then actually paint what he's looking at. And there's a, a sense of uh, composition in his work that's distinct from other people's a little bit. Um, but again, it's kind of a young guy, and uh, he's just, you know, learning his way. Um, in 1928, Mr. Rudolf Polarski was hired to teach at Pratt himself. And um, at first he was um, teaching uh, the night schools, then he was teaching the full class of, uh, for the full-time full students in illustration, design, drawing, and layout. And he also taught the uh, life model class drawing at night. Um, here's a picture of him in his glory with his mom and dad. And, uh, you know, no longer making 50 cents a day, but, uh, you know, a guy that's lecturing at museums in New York City and making a, a really good money, basically. 
compared to what they were making. And his work is incredible. You know, these, they're, when you look at all the other pulps at that time that are about aviation, they're, they're pretty much outstanding. But um, not to denigrate any of the other good ones, but his stuff is unique. Uh, he basically outgrew his pigeonhole of um, just simply being a, a war aviation guy. And he began to do adventure, western, romance, sports and jungle stuff. And in 1935, he started working for Ned Pine's uh, thrilling publications. But he also received assignments from Street and Smith and uh, Frank Muncy. And, and all during this heavy, heavy work, he's teaching. He's doing a tremendous amount of covers. This is not a picture of him camping. This is just a picture of him visiting back in DuPont. But he would also go back camping um, right in the middle of this kind of thing. And um, he liked the best time to do it was when it was freezing cold. So he would go in the freezing cold uh, into like, you know, 10 feet of snow into Maine. And uh, like, I don't know. And, and he, would, he would eat what he hunted and, and just like that, like an Indian or something. You know, he was really like living off the land kind of thing, not, not just uh, uh, parking the RV or anything like that. This is um, a nice cover for Argosy. Uh, call me Mike, and this is uh, the check, 125 bucks for Call Me Mike. And there's that long uh, disclaimer thing that if by cashing this check you give you surrender all rights to uh, Muncie. You know, that's what that paragraph is up there for the painting. You know, Call Me Mike. Oh, it says there, Call Me Mike. What the hell does it say? <laughs> Um, this is his wife um, in the middle of all that. Her name was Dorothy Hedge Coriel. They married August 3rd, 1937 in a civil ceremony in Manhattan. And um, that's her in this thing. That's her modeling for him. And these are three portraits of her. <laughs> and if you... Uh, if you look at this face right here and try to remember it, it's that same face there. <laughs> so he's madly, madly in love with her, you know. Apparently she was great. <laughs> mean, mean people. There she is again. I love this cover. Um, I always thought this was by Emmett Watson who did a lot of work for them, and his signature looks exactly like this. And he was about uh, 12 or 15 years older than Rudy. And uh, I got my magnifying glass when I was like 20 or something, and I thought, what, that's Rudy Bilarski. And I always thought it was by Emmett Watson, but Emmett Watson, the older artist, um, must have influenced the heck out of him. And because he's really getting great with composition and beautiful color combinations, this is really a very beautiful painting. Um, no matter how you look at it, it's just, it's just like, an, it's excellent. It's like, I think it's great. <laughs> and uh, you can see this is a, a cover, and here's like the actual painting. Just, I don't know. They don't lose that much. It looks pretty good, the same thing. But I love all the extra graphic stuff. You know, the blue really looks good with his shirt. 
You know, it looks kind of empty without it. And that bright red and black with a bright red and black down here and red and black there, it's like he had it all planned out. I think it actually looks better, you know, with the cover instead. Um, but if I owned it, I wouldn't paint that stuff on there, you know. <laughs> this is one of my all-time favorite covers. It's just so... I've met other people with this thing. I don't get it. I hate it. But I just love it. It's got the giant dice and this woman in the back. This, like, mystery spirit thing. And the guy just struggling so hard. And the treasure chest at the bottom. It's just the greatest cover. So he's, he's working, you know, for... Um, everything he's just doing great and you know a lot of, you know these are all Muncie type covers synthetic men of Mars but here's a thrilling this is one of his big breakthroughs it's a 1940 he did a, a slick illustration and it's an excellent job uh, for Liberty magazine he went on and did plenty of plenty of other ones so like uh, Baumhofer, you know, his classmate, uh, Baumhofer got over into the slicks with Liberty at first and stuff also. And he was, you know, making a good um, um, step up, you know, getting out of, out of the pulps a little bit. And uh, then the war came. And um, after Pearl Harbor, um, I don't know if everyone's aware of this or not, but it's pretty neat. Um, James Montgomery flagged the guy, you know, who painted I Want You in the First World War, uh, mobilized over 500 artists in America to join the USO program that would visit hospital wards and make drawings of wounded servicemen who were too ill to leave their beds. So, you know, they could wheel them into a, a thing with Bob Hope or, or they try to do something with the guys like in their actual beds and stuff. And um, so Blarty signed up for this program along with Dean Cornwell, Charles Dana Gibson, Howard Chandler Christie, and at first they uh, visited, he visited the East Coast hospitals and there'd be like a sign in the lobby saying, uh, Rudolf Bolarski, artist, illustrator, sketch today. Ward patients only. It's fun, it's free. And uh, one week after D-Day, he received an overseas assignment and before his departure, he made a giant batch of paintings for thrilling. And... Um, then sailed for destinations unknown on a convoy through the North Atlantic. 20 days later, after most of the convoy had survived several U-boat attacks, his ship arrived in England and he was assigned to a London hospital, which was surrounded by bombed out buildings. And um, according to uh, newspaper accounts um, at the time, uh, having your portrait sketched by a USO artist can do wonders for picking up the spirits of hospitalized GIs. Doctors find that the portrait sketching has a great medical and therapeutic value. It speeds patients' recovery by cheering them. Knowledge of the portrait we sent back to the, homes, to the home front was also a great heartwarming feeling for them, too. So Bolarski uh, dedicated himself to this program and remained in, in England um, for the duration. Um, drawing wounded veterans and uh, made um, like 2,500 drawings of guys. Um, and um, after uh, VE Day, he sailed back to America. And on the ship's manifest, he was listed as single because by that time uh, of this long 
um, separation, they had amicably divorced. So he was back um, in the USA after the war. And he went um, right back to work with Thrilling. And um, he worked steadily and exclusively for them from 1945 until 1950. And here's our old pal again. But now you see it in a different light maybe, huh? So these are um, uh, incredible thrilling covers that we think of the post-war period for Rudy Bilarski. Now this, uh, at this time, this, is, this model is all one person and you know, her name was um, Gladys Laddie Bell. And uh, so they're also at, at Thrilling, they're bringing out um, the paperbacks too. And so they're uh, at first um, using the, a lot of the same artwork um, on it and then um, commissioning new artwork also for the popular library paperback line. This statuesque beauty is um, Gladys Laddie Bell, who became uh, Laddie Berlarski. And he's, the artist is clearly inspired by her outstanding beauty. <laughs> what the? Uh, and, but he refused to give up his unusual lifestyle of alternating periods of intense studio work with these camping trips, which she didn't want to go on. So he refused, and so the marriage ended in divorce, amicably, after less than one year. But we have all these great covers. Are they all the same woman? No, because he got to get a new woman. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, model, the man in that is Emery Clark, who did a lot of great covers um, for Thrilling also. That's a pal of his. Get a chance to look at that one, it's very nice. These are chronological, so you can sort of get an idea. He also uh, was kind of dumped from Thrilling because they brought in another guy who said this stuff looks so out of, out of date, it's tasteless. And uh, so around this time he started working for other, other paperback companies. And it's interesting after he did all those years uh, working in the wards that he would uh, he brought probably something extra to this type of cover. So along with that, um, he had to find other ways of making money too uh, in the 1950s. And um, so like everyone, Mike Norm Saunders, Walter Baumhofer, Rafael de Soto, A. Leslie Ross, George Gross, they were all great pulp artists that were working then for the Men's Adventure magazines. and. Um, uh, you know, about great outdoor sporting, fishing, and, uh, you know, bullfighting type paintings. Uh, but to establish his own expertise in this field, which he genuinely had, um, Rudy uh, wrote and illustrated a story about his own camping experience. Um, I went it alone. And um, that's actually written and illustrated, so that's Rudy doing a self-portrait of himself. Okay, and uh, so it actually does look a little bit like him, but not too much. 
But um, so he also worked for, you know, um, Outdoor Life, Man's Illustrated, Man's Conquest, Man's World, Men, Stag, True Adventure. But despite, uh, you know, um, his success in this field, uh, he, he really still needed to get money because these guys paid even less than the pulps did. Um, but his work is good. So uh, Norman Rockwell was the popular spokesman for the famous artist school in Westport, Connecticut. You know, and it's the 12 top guys at that time. You can see their list on there. It's like mainly it was Al Dorn came up with the idea. It was an advertising artist. Stephen Dohannes, Bob Fawcett, Harold Von Schmidt, Al Parker, Austin Briggs, Johnny Whitcomb. So they were offering these courses, correspondence courses, just like Rudy had taken from ICS. And uh, kids would mail in their stuff after they paid for it. And then they would uh, fill in their little artwork, send it to them. And the artists would criticize, criticize critique them, and uh, send them back. And they were, uh, you know, the 12 guys, but they also hired over 400 artists that were uh, actually doing the genuine critiquing. It wasn't at all uh, like an assembly line thing. It was a genuine one-on-one -on -one situation. It was very, very successful, more than any other correspondence school in history. And uh, Rudy uh, took a full-time job with those guys. So uh, this is meet your instructor. It's like the little page that would go out to people that uh, you know happened to you know just by lottery pick uh, Rudy Bolarski. I mean, didn't pick him. He was just assigned to them, and he would be the guy that would be answering their stuff. Each time he would go in, he would uh, take a stack of assignments and then bring them back home. And uh, that was how it worked. They didn't do anything really at the uh, school in, in Westport, Connecticut. But every time he came in, um, there was a receptionist named Bobby Jean Holsenhausen, and she had been a Radio City Music Hall Rockette, and, uh, which is the most famous kick line in show business. And uh, he used to always, uh, she thought he was just a wolf, because he would always make a pass at her every time he went in there, and he probably was. And, um, but he had such persistence and such good humor and such charm that she said, she told me it really paid off because I finally, we got married in 1960 and um, he did this nice painting of her. So that's Bobby Bolarski and she's still alive. And um, it's one of his last three or four paintings. Uh, but he retired from, uh, painting, this is a, a party during the summertime at the famous artist school, and uh, the school was going through trouble and there was, it was less and less vi viable for people to even want to be illustrators, <laughs> so the school was like uh, running out of steam and um, they began shutting down. So he, he, sh he shut down with them in 72, and like a lot of guys, my dad and Walter Baumhofer and stuff, you know, he just uh, began to paint landscapes for his own amusement and um, um, uh, try to get portrait commissions and stuff. And so that was it for him. This is like supposedly his ideal campsite, which is again kind of significant. This is his studio at his house. This is his cat Sandy. And you can see it right there. The, um, these, are, uh, these are sketches. They're little, little uh, small images of each one of the little guys that he drew. So he kept copies of them. These are all soldiers, you know, from his uh, USO thing. Um, 
he was in generally good health, and, uh, but he, he, he did have chronic uh, stomach trouble. It developed into a painful uh, colitis, and uh, he went into Norwalk Hospital on Christmas Eve, 1983, and unexpectedly died. But he was 83 years old, but he, he basically had good health. He was a sourpuss, though, in general, so he wasn't, like, um, upbeat. But um, he was doing fine. It was really sad. But um, it, I find it kind of a comfort to think that, you know, his, such colorful covers of his grew out of such a uh, dark and dismal um, coal mine childhood. It's kind of like a, a good testimonial to the, um, the power of life's inspiration, which is almost irrepressible, that it, you know, could blossom into this work from this guy. So it's a good lesson to me that, you know, great art will transcend um, the temporal limitations of uh, commercial art. Any questions? How about a round of applause for Rudy Bolarski? You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.